And I, I like the general people of the world, to whoever is listening to this, to just ask themselves one question. Mm. If these victims had not been Asians, suppose Hitler had done this to somebody, do you think 80 years after the war, these people will be without a monument? Yeah. Suppose Hitler had done this to the Polish people, forget the Jewish, let, let, let it be any other community. Mm. They say, such a large number of people had died. How come there's no commemoration for them? There's no monument for them, not even a tombstone for them. We can't let this go on. Mm. The world would come together and, and sympathize with this group of people. But here you have a, a hundred thousand people died. So what happened to them? Why is there nothing for them? Not a monument, not even a tombstone. And you don't get that mentioned in, in, the, in the history books. There's no commemoration. Welcome back to the Death Railway Revisited podcast. I'm Nick Fordham, and inspired by the movie The Bridge on the River Kwai, I'm on a journey to discover what happened here in Southeast Asia 80 years ago. Why, at a conservative estimate, approximately 100,000 people died, maybe more, constructing a railway from Thailand to Burma. And in doing so, I've unearthed some surprising facts about what actually happened and what did not. You say there was no bridge over the River Kwai. In fact, there was no River Kwai. Absolutely, absolutely. Along the way, I'm talking to experts to help me piece the story together. People like the man whose voice you've just heard, Rod Beatty, creator of the Thailand Burma Railway Centre in Kanchanaburi. And Chandra Sekaran, chairman of the Death Railway Interest Group, whose voice started this episode. I've been thinking for some time about how best to end this podcast. What do I want to discuss and reflect on after my journey along the railway? And I realise that one theme keeps on returning. Closure. How do we as humans get closure after trauma? What is closure? So in this episode, the final episode, I want to look at four ways that people have attempted and are still attempting to get closure from the death railway some with success and some less so. And those four things are commemoration, compensation, retribution, and reconciliation. Here's Rod and me discussing this in the archives office of the Thai Burma Railway Centre. And having spoken to family members of of Asian labourers, I know that there's a a feeling that perhaps they haven't got closure because there aren't those records, because they don't have the uh, the graves and memorials that they do for POWs, which, which I suppose speaks to what you were saying about how as human beings we, we need an element of closure. Sometimes we need somewhere to go to, to be able to say this is where it happened, as you did with that family last week, to show them where their father died. Um, it's interesting as human beings that, that, that perhaps this is why we need memorials Absolutely. and places to, un- to, to understand, but also to, to be able to visit in a way. Yes, and, and closure. That's what we need. Now, one of my uncles who died in the First World War, he's buried in Wiltshire, Codford St Mary's. So the assumption was he'd gone across the Western Front, wounded there, brought back to a hospital in England and died there. 
No, it's only when you start to research that you find out actually what happened to him mm. and then to go down there and stand in front of his grave. Mm. Right. Great uncle never even got to the front. He died of pneumonia on the 1st of January 1917. Never got there. But it's only after you research and you find out. Yeah. yeah. Go back and stand in front of his grave. Mm. Mm. Closure. Closure for the families. Well, Story. And, and I've been there and yeah. I, I see great-uncle Edwin's grave there and my father was named after Edwin. I'm perfectly content that that's where he is. Yeah. Because at that stage, we were all very patriotic. We joined up to fight for king and country, and our king was King George, right? So away we went to fight. Mm. And here he is resting in the most a beautiful part of England. It is. Here. Yeah. Just, and the little town there with the thatched houses and the little high street and the little misty rain. And he went away for that. Not expecting to die, but that's where he is. And I feel very content that that's where he is. And I think this is why it's so important for Chandra to have a proper permanent memorial. Here he is discussing with me how the Asian labourers on the railway have been all but forgotten. But one set of people get recognition and they get commemoration every year at the Hellfire Pass and all that. Another group of people, not only do they not get commemoration or anything, their existence itself is not acknowledged. Like I said, they never existed. Mm. And this is what I cannot understand. And who do we blame for this? Who do you blame? I said everybody. <laughs> well, you see, the Japanese took you there. Yes, they are, they are in a way responsible, but then they lost the war. So their, their responsibility ends there. So you are the winners of the war. You are the victors, the Allied forces. You are the victors. And you are the one who, who spoke on their behalf, you negotiated on their behalf with the Japanese what compensation should be given. If you, can't, if you don't want to bankrupt Japan, can't you at least see the need to, to, to acknowledge the existence of these workers on yeah. the railway? And now we are going to celebrate the 80th anniversary without any mention of the Asian workers. So this is what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to make sure that before the 80th anniversary, we want to have a monument for the Asian workers. Yeah. And uh, hopefully we'll get it within the next two months. And a few weeks later, Chandra calls me. His hard work and persistence has paid off. He's got his monument. Do I want to come to the opening ceremony? Would I be there? Of course I would. Chandra tells me about his plans and the place they have chosen for a permanent memorial. And like I said, there are a few, uh, maybe three survivors still around. Mm. These were very young people. They were teenagers during the war. Uh, the oldest person is about 97 years old. I want his presence during the war, uh, during the opening ceremony of that monument. It's an existing monument. It's not even a brand new monument. It's an existing monument. What's the monument for now? Okay, you see, the monument was actually, it was not a monument. It was uh, basically a, a pagoda, a structure mm. built over a mass grave. Right. Okay. What happened was after the war, all these uh, Asian workers were buried, scattered all over Kanchanapuri. So with development, they were all uh, collected and, and buried at one central location. And when there were no more new bodies being found, a pagoda was built over it to remember these people. But the, these people themselves were already dead. Their families are not there. So the people who buried them were actually the local Buddhists. 
And uh, the contractor who built it was probably a Chinese contractor. So he put up a pagoda and on the pagoda, he had put there uh, some Chinese characters that roughly translates to a grave of tens of thousands of souls without any mention of who these souls are. Nothing. Nothing. So we have uh, questioned several people who know something about it and then pieced the information together. And that seems to indicate that there was a hospital, a POW hospital, and also a workers' hospital. The POWs were, were retrieved, their bodies were retrieved and neatly placed in the cemeteries. These workers were just left where they were. So after the war, with the development coming up, the bodies were dug up and then buried here. So who were these people? Mm. They were obviously workers of the death railway. And they were predominantly Tamils from the plantations in Malaya. So that is why we feel that we owe a responsibility to these people to do something about this. Chandra tells me the monument is called Neranam Chedi, which translates as the Pagoda of the Nameless, or the Pagoda of the Unknown. Only a hundred metres or so from the Pagoda is Kanchanaburi Cemetery, one of three large cemeteries, one in Thambuziat and two around Kanchanaburi, established for the POWs after the war. I'm standing in Kanchnaburi Cemetery. It's an immaculately kept cemetery, right in the centre of town. You can probably hear the noise of the local evening traffic going past me and also other noise that you might hear is the sprinkler next to me which is just doing a great job of keeping all the flowers on the graves watered. It's beautifully kept, the cemetery, the lawn, each grave and there's 7,000 of them here in the cemetery, British, Australian and Dutch and each grave as I said has little plant or flower next to it and it varies as you go along so there's jasmine all the way down the edge of the cemetery but then the colours and the flowers vary as you look around. Right in the middle there's a, there's a large cross and equally at the end there's there's a small wall with the names of the soldiers whose remains couldn't be identified. And the story about why all the soldiers are here is a very interesting one, and I'm going to tell you more about that. During the rail construction, the POW dead were buried in 144 different cemeteries along the line. It was decided it would be too difficult to maintain so many cemeteries, with many of them in particularly remote spots. Here's Rod telling me a little about the post-war effort to bring all the dead together. But there was quite, uh, quite an extraordinary job to, to gather them all together. Tell me a little bit about that. A combined group, British, Australian, Dutch, Wargraves representative, came here within a month of the war finishing. They went all the way up 
they, they collected all of these POW death records and plans of cemeteries, etc., etc., and then left Nongpladuk and went all the way up to Thambusi at the far end. We're talking September 1945, a month after this is all over. Mm. And they worked their way back along the railway, relocating all of these burial grounds, 144 of them, and recording the names of all the burials that they could find. And I used that information for when I was exploring the railway to try and re relocate all of these places. Only took 11 years. Um, so I used their work. Immediately afterwards, a decision was made, the 144 burial grounds, we can't maintain all of them. So we will concentrate the bodies into three major war cemeteries. After an initial journey up the railway identifying the location of the 144 cemeteries, the group went back up the railway with Japanese prisoners of war to exhume thousands of bodies, many of which had been underground for two years. And I believe some POWs who probably desperately wanted to get home after three and a half years' captivity very selflessly volunteered to be on this trip to, to help identify where the camps were Absolutely. where the burial grounds were. Absolutely, and great, great credit to that small number of men yeah. who went back with this war grave spidey to help locate all these burial grounds and record, yes, mm. and also to recover some of the POW records. Yes. Because the Japanese were terrified of burial grounds, right? So the allies, of the, the, the prisoners of war administration, would often take the opportunity of records being placed in some, hopefully, watertight, termite-proof container and burying them in a grave, mm. along with someone couple of cases they actually buried them in created a false grave but mm. yeah buried them within the burial grounds and then post-war when they were they went back the first thing they did was they went looking for these records they dug them up so buried with some of the bodies or in false graves we have records and accounts of what happened we've got diaries of, of some of the POWs I think also some of the, 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 the pictures that some of them drew of the conditions. Yes. And a lot of pay books, yes. And was any of this used in the war crimes uh, as evidence? Of course, uh, yeah. whatever they could. Carrie Outram, whose dowry extracts I've been reading, is one of the men who buried his dowries in a grave for safekeeping. Among the Japanese prisoners forced to work on the expedition exhuming bodies was Takashi Nagase, who had worked as an interpreter for the Japanese Kempentai, the military police, during the war. He wrote about the experience years later, his fear of the Thai jungle and the cold hostility of the English and Australian men who were with him, the indifference of the Japanese to helping the expedition. He saw Asian labourers, desperate to get home, pleading with Allied officers for help. He recalls that while much work was done to find every last POW grave, the Asian labourer graves were ignored by everybody. I feared, Nagase wrote, that this contrast would make people think that the Japanese did not care about the Romushas. The experience he had on this expedition 
the misery he saw, the countless corpses, had a profound effect on him. He felt remorse, regret and guilt. We shall return to Takashi Nagase later in this episode. Meanwhile, this time in response to Chandra's invitation to the opening ceremony, I'm back in Kanchanaburi. Sitting at the ceremony that Chandra and his Thai counterparts have worked so hard to put in place, I realise how Asian this story is. I know it sounds a bit naive to say that. However, in my defence, I came to this story via a British movie with British actors about British soldiers making a bridge. And yet sitting here in Thailand, watching a Hindu and Buddhist ceremony, to mark the opening of a memorial for the unknown and probably unknowable number of dead Asian labourers who built a railway for their Japanese overlords in Thailand and Burma. Here, right now, it seems a very different story. The main purpose of this upcoming historical event in inauguration ceremony of monument in Asian victim during Siam Burma Death Railway Construction in Kanjaburi, Thailand. To be held in Tawon Wararam Temple, Kanjaburi, will be addressed as follows. First, to commemorate past Asian workers conscripted during Death Railway Construction, in particular to Tamil, India, Malaysia, Indonesia, Vietnamese, and other nationalities. Second, 
to remind us on wartime consequences recalling tragedy, brutality, and violence confronted by Asian workers during World War II. And three, and to ask which historic monument forever standing its ground and reminding all people on deeply sorrowful consequences of war. Amongst the people gathered for the ceremony is a survivor of the railway construction. And when the ceremony is over, I managed to have a few brief words with him. My name is Arumugam Kandasame. So, during Japanese occupation, Japanese brought me to Thailand. And you were 15 years old? 15, I am, I am 15 years old. Mm. So, I, first I came to Thailand, I saw many people died, mm. daily died. What were they dying of? Uh, yeah, this place also. Yeah. Many, many, many of them, more than under over thousand people died. I see my own heart. Mm. Because how, how, how can we see this all the things here? Because I was a translator to Japanese. Okay. So did that mean that that helped you because you were a translator, you had a special job? Mm. Maybe did you get extra food? Did they look after you better? Japanese don't know. Mm. So Japanese, they will hammer these people. Yes. Always getting this is a big problem. So uh, the uh, MP used to call me the military police. Yes. The Japanese military police can be Thai. Mm. They will call me to the office. Mm. I will go there. Then they ask me to call these people to ask how, why they did this and that all. So I will talk to them very nicely. So I try to help these workers. Did you come here on your own or with friends? The Japanese brought me. Beginning my son and my brother then, after three months' time, the Japanese brought me here. Yeah. When my brother came by the train, yes. train yeah. to Kuala Lumpur, mm. to Kanjanapati, my train, myself, I went to Singapore, Singapore to Indochina, Saigon, you know Saigon? Yes. Vietnam. Yes. I was sometimes in Vietnam, then went to Cambodia, then I will go to Bangkok, then I stayed, I will come to Kanjanapur yes. by steamer. But, but, uh, the, from the company Phnom Penh, I went by the train mm. to Kanjanapur. How do you, how do you feel about this, this story? How do you feel about it? Yes. Mm -hmm. When you remember what happened, uh, how do you feel? Are you angry? Are you sad? What, how do you feel when you remember the stories? For the beginning, yes, I have been frightened mm. to the Japanese. After that, day, I changed my mind. Mm. Anyhow, I must go back to Malaysia to, to see my father, mother, my parents. Sorry. So I think the one thing only. His story is a fascinating one. 
As you just heard him say, Aromagan Kandasame was 15 years old when the Japanese took his brother away to work in Thailand. Three months later, they returned and ordered him to go as well. His route to Thailand was via Singapore and Saigon. As he and his fellow workers were marched through the streets of Saigon, an Indian merchant called out to him, Don't go! Don't go to Thailand! Many people go there and many people die. Stay here! I can hide you, son! And yet Aromagan replied, I must go. I'm looking for my brother. So he went to Thailand, to Kanchanaburi, and then walked twelve days solid in constant pouring rain, passing many dead bodies along the way to his work camp at Kinsayok. Tragically, he was too late to see his brother. Other Tamil workers told him that his brother had died within days of arriving at the camp. Arumagam spoke a little Japanese and volunteered to translate for the Japanese guards. He did his best to help the Tamil labourers when there was a misunderstanding and they were in trouble. He lived with the Japanese soldiers, and it was perhaps this, the better living conditions and food, that saved him. He remembers that the Japanese guards were not much older than he was. They too were homesick, and would often show him pictures of their families back home in Japan. I watched him speak to the Thai press after the ceremony. He was rather enjoying being the centre of attention. How did he like his visit to Kanchanaburi? they asked. Much better than the first time, he replied to everyone's amusement. I'm coming back again next year, he said with a broad smile on his face. I wondered as I watched him if this impish charm had saved him 80 years ago. That the Japanese guards were happy to have this cheerful lad around and gave him odd jobs and translating work to do, and helped shield him from the brutal labour on the line. Nor, at only 15 years old, was Arumagam the youngest to work on the railway. Chandra tells me that women and children also worked on the railway. He'd spoken to a man who worked there when he was just 10 years old. It seems to me unconscionable that you would bring children that young to such a hostile environment and make them work to support your war effort. Also amongst the people gathered for the memorial opening ceremony are some families of the victims of the death railway. And I spoke to one of them. So I'm having lunch here and I'm with one of the families of one of the victims of the railway and we've had a a lovely lunch on a peaceful part of the river, right by the, the famous bridge. And they're going to tell us a little bit about their family and why they're here today to visit the monument and a little bit about their own family history. So first of all, tell us your name. My name is Gurama Sridhare. Daughter of Aparna. So I was. Uh, my father was in the estate. The name of Bulo Akar Estate, Pare Perak State. Now that's a, a, a plantation, a rubber estate yes. in Malaya. Uh, yes, plantation, rubber estate in Malaya. So my father was worked in the marriages bungalow. Right. Yeah. Uh, so my mother was tapper. So, very small family, 
Japanese occupation time, my brother, my elder brother was six years old. The Japanese already take away my father. At that time, I was in my mother's womb for two months. Wow. So very unlucky. So you never saw your father, and he never saw you. How does that make you feel that he never saw you and you never saw him? But uh, that time I was very small, you know. Mm. Uh, I feel bad when uh, my co-school uh, students mm. having father. Yes. Yeah. So I feel something very sad. I don't have a father. Grandma's also tells me of the consequence of her father's absence on the family, not just emotional but economical. How hard it was for them to survive financially. How her brother had to leave school at just 12 to work on the plantations. Let's go back to the Japanese taking your father away. How did they do that? Was there a list of names or did they just turn up and take him? What happened? Do you remember? Well, you won't remember. Yeah, remember the story. I, I, don't <laughs> yeah. I heard what, what he was telling. Ooh. My brother told me that they already... Without inform the family, the truck has come into the state, they already take him. Right. So without informing anybody, they just take. So one day your father's there, the next day he's not, and you have no idea. The same day. Yeah. The same day we come to know that the Japanese already taken him away. Right. So my brother have so he told. My mother told. And you you don't really know what happened to him, although some people who were working with him had some idea. <coughs> In that, that particular estate, there will be seven of them, they went together, it seems. Yes. So only two returned back. Two survivors. Mm. The rest all, they already died there, including my father. And what do you know about your father's death? Uh, once they came back, they already informed my family mm. that my father already passed away. Mm. And do you know how he passed away? Yeah, purging and uh, diarrhea. Vomiting and diarrhea, yes. so he mm. possibly had dysentery. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe he doesn't like the food or what, we don't know. Maybe the water, not clean, not hygienic. Yes. Yeah. So seven from the from the same plantation, seven people go, yeah. only two come only back. And did they have any stories about what had happened on the railway? Not just about your father, but just did their experiences on the railway? No, no, they didn't. They didn't want to talk about it. I've heard this again and again. So many people who worked on the railway, whether POWs or Asian labourers simply did not talk about their experience after the war. However, thankfully, it's the next generations, the children and grandchildren of people forced to work on the railway, like Chandra Sekharan and Andrew Snow of the Thai Burma Railway Centre, who are keeping the story alive. Both Chandra and Andrew's fathers worked on the death railways, and in Andrew's case, his uncle did as well. And Julie Summers' desire to share the story of the death railway is undoubtedly fuelled by the experience of her grandfather, Colonel Tuzi. Another thing I observe at the opening ceremony is the genuine and heartfelt gratitude of the people there. 
their happiness and gratitude that thanks to Chandra's dedication, there's finally a permanent memorial for the Asian labourers. That they too, perhaps, have a little closure. You've come a long way to be here as a family. You're all here and it's taken you 24 hours to get here. It's taken you 24 hours to go back tomorrow. But why was it so important for you to be here this weekend? We already came here mm. to see the, the country, mm. how the country is. When my, uh, my father came here, they went, they slogged for this country, they died. So we wants to know how, how much they would have suffered mm. those days. Now everything is very good. Mm. So that's what we came here. So when I came here, I thought uh, Dr. Surin asked me to bring, because my father passed away here. Mm. So he, he said when, when the opening ceremony on aggression, will you bring your family? Dr. Surin asked me. I said, definitely. Mm. If you can, I will do it. So, so how by God's will or my father's wish, Maybe his soul wish, his son is here, daughter here, grandson, grandson here. Yeah. So I hope my father's soul will be blessing us. That's what we are here with my family. Well, that's very nice. Yeah, I'm glad very, you made it. Uh, that's very great. Mm. So, same like the other soul, other family people, friends, all came here. Mm. All of us, 30 of us came here from Malaysia. But all feel the same way. Maybe their their friends, their grandfathers, their uncles. We might know, don't know who are they. But still their souls will be blessed. And there's somewhere to go to now as well. Sorry? There's somewhere to go to after today. Yeah. There's somewhere where you can go to to remember them here in Kanchanaburi. Well, I'm glad you've come here and I'm glad you're happy that you've come here. Thank you. Thank and I'm glad you've had a good weekend. I am glad to meet you with my family. I'm very glad we had lunch together. Yeah. Thank you very lunch much. Together. Thank you, <laughs> And Arumagam is also grateful that he too made the long trip to Thailand. You said you were very happy to be here today. Why are you so happy? This memorial, is it very important oh, to you? It is sad. This only thing he said, you see, this one must yell here when they do. This already 80 years too late. Mm. So my friend, they said, the leader there, he takes interest to call the people, talk to them. Some rather can do it. Because this European got the memory. The Chinese also got. Yes. Other nations also, everybody's having. But the Indian, Indian, eh? say thousand of people have died. Other thousand of people have died. Eh? No name, nothing, nobody knows. Yes. So, now the people can recognize. Those who have come to this place, they know how oh, Indian uh, people died, uh, they will go into the memory. Yes. Like that. It's very, very important. It's very important. I think you said it's yes. it's come 80 years too late. I think yes. that's what you said. And it's so important. 80 years too late. But whilst the campaign for commemoration has finally yielded some success, 
the campaign for compensation for the Asian workers did not. Years of campaigning has yielded no result, and Chandra concedes that it's now too late. Even for the POWs, compensation was a long, drawn-out process. I spoke to Ian Townsend, former Director-General of the British Legion, about the compensation the POWs eventually received. So what year did they finally get the compensation for working on the Burma Railway? Well, we worked at it very hard uh, over a a period of about three years after Tony Blair's government uh, came in, and they finally got it in the year 2000. So they finally got compensation 55 years after the Second World War. Yes, it's a it's an interesting uh, element of the whole uh, story, I think, that because, of course, in the immediate post-war years, and I can remember those in the 40s and 50s and 60s, um, we hadn't really joined the compensation culture. Um, there had been some World War II reparations. Uh, and, of course, one of those was for uh, those who'd been prisoners of the Japanese uh, to have a a small uh, gratuity. Um, And that gratuity, uh, after the San Francisco uh, Treaty in 52, I think it was, uh, came out at about £75 each. Uh, And that was it. And it really, the the momentum grew over the years. Um, And it was when they all became, those who were left became elderly, 80 years old plus, that I think um, uh, there was a a greater press um, for some sort of compensation. I mean, I wrote to Tony Blair and then got um, really involved with him and finally had a a one-to-one meeting with him, uh, with Lewis Mooney, the um, junior defence minister. And I spelt out the issue. I spelt out what I thought it would cost. And I gave an estimate of what I thought the compensation should be. And that figure was, I believe, £10,000. It was indeed, yeah, yeah. And I reckon that probably at that stage, there were only a few hundred um, survivors and widows who were left. But of course, what happened subsequently was that um, others came in uh, outside our uh, ambit uh, and really joined in the, um, the, the, the cry for some recognition, mainly people, civilians who had been um, uh, incarcerated by the Japanese during the, the Second World War. Um, so it, it turned out to be quite a large bill, I think about 250 million in the end. That is quite a lot. And that the British government paid for that, not the Japanese, just to be clear about that. Yes, I, I think it was an interesting thing because um, back in 1955, the British government weren't prepared to press the uh, case any further because they felt that um, uh, relations with the Japanese were getting better diplomatically and with trade and so on. Um, And so they kicked the whole uh, idea of that into touch. We discovered that subsequently, and that was one of the levers that I had to pull to get Tony Blair to to jump in and, and help. And so that's really what happened in the end. And we, I think, did come up with quite a good package and it didn't take long to come through. I mean, people were were really getting their, their compensation quite quickly. Thanks to Ian and his team's hard work, some men or their widows did get some compensation. A similar scheme happened in Australia at the same time. But by the end of the century, most of the former prisoners had passed away. 
Was it a case of too little, too late? And how does one evaluate such a thing as compensation? For years after the war, the compensation issue created tension. And it appears that, as both Ian and Chandra suggest, the real politique of reconstruction and reintegrating Japan into a post-war world influenced how far countries were willing to push Japan to pay war reparations and compensation. The case for restitution seems equally unresolved. Immediately after the war, work began on collecting evidence for war crime trials. And as we heard earlier, some of that evidence was hidden in false graves in cemeteries along the railway. Some of the former prisoners, like Dunlop, were ambivalent, as we shall hear, about the war crime trials. Others were very much opposed. Lawrence van der Post, imprisoned during the war in Java, whose book The Seed and the Sower inspired the film Merry Christmas, Mr Lawrence, wrote, I was utterly opposed to any form of war trials. There seemed to me something unreal, if not utterly false, about a process that made men like the war crime investigators from Europe who had not suffered under the Japanese, more bitter and vengeful about our suffering than we were ourselves. The eponymous Lawrence, at the end of the film, tells the Japanese Sergeant Hara on the eve of his execution for war crimes, You're the victim of men who think they're right. Just as one day you and Captain Yonoi believed absolutely that you were right. And the truth is, of course... Nobody's right. And yet thousands died and suffered unimaginably during the construction of the railway. Surely they deserve justice. So the questions to be asked are ultimately, who should be accountable? And what is justice? I asked Sarah Kovner, author of Prisoners of the Empire, POWs and their captors in the Pacific, about this. So who should be accountable? Well, the theory of this, as, as you know, um, and this ties into your last question, right, is that the people that they're trying to try only the people at the top, that those are the people who are, are, are the most guilty. Um, I think that um, there are like several ideas for people who could be held guilty. The head of the Prisoner War Information Bureau, right, and they try him. I could explain to you why I think that, I mean, you know, he, he was formally responsible for all of the guards and all of their treatment. On the other hand, if he, if you think about what he could have done, if he tried to act in a different way, then he would have just been removed from his post. Um, but that doesn't mean that he's not responsible. Um, so there's a lot of responsibility to go around, I think. I mean, and, and, you know, people have written about this, but, or guards, individual guards, particularly colonial guards, they're not really free actors. Right. So um, any, any, and um, there's a whole body of literature on like kind of what responsibilities you have as a serviceman in a military situation and, um, you know, what is right and what is wrong in that situation. And a lot of that literature came out after World War II um, and particularly after Vietnam and My Lai. Right. And thinking about um, so, you know, if you talk to. Well, when I talked to Korean guards, um, at least one of them that I can think of said, you know, it's the worst thing that I've done in my life. I've spent the rest of my life atoning for it. I became a Christian. I pray every day that, um, you know, that, that, that God will save me, right? Um, is he, I, I think there's a lot of blame to go around, I guess I would say. 
I don't know if that answers your question sufficiently. I mean, or do you blame who started the war? <laughs> I also spoke with Chair Wu Ling, an associate professor at the Faculty of Law of the National University of Singapore, about the post-war trials. And yet again, it seems that the desire by governments to move on and put the war behind them impacted the way the trials were conducted. Um, I think that when we are looking at the trials that were conducted back then, I think it's also important not to impose present-day standards on those trials. So I'm not saying they were not problematic. So the Allies were under great pressure to finish conducting these trials in a short time span. And they were also struggling with post-war conditions. So there were shortage of trial venues in Singapore. There was one trial that was actually held under a tree because there were no venues available at that time. And there were problems of evidence and identification. And actually, due to the complex nature of mass crimes, it's very hard to determine the guilt and role of individuals when the trial is expedited. If you look at trials conducted today, they last years, because it's actually very hard to assess and analyse systematic mass crimes. There's some very good points there. I think one thing is, is really important to stress is when you have a crime of the magnitude of the death railway and you have, we don't even know the exact figure, but, but let's go for the, the rough figure that most people go with, about 100,000 people, 100,000 people die on this railway. Somebody has to be held accountable for it. I mean, they, they simply must be held accountable for it. But you're right, there's the complexity of who we find accountable for it uh, is, is very challenging. I want to talk about the one particular case which sort of grabbed my attention, um, which is a Korean guard, Yi Hak Nei, um, did you did you manage to have a look at his story? Yes, the what you sent. Yeah, it's very interesting. I'm going to just briefly share the story with everyone else so they they get a sense of who we're talking about. Young Korean recruited into the Japanese army from Korea at the age of 17 uh, has a fairly brutal, like most people did when they joined the Japanese army. Uh, initiation into the army at he he claims that he was beaten every day for for two months uh, while he was being recruited uh, and trained then uh, he, he's not really actually in the army he's 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 what he's called sort of reserve guards so he doesn't even have the rank of private but he he works in one of the most notorious camps on the railway where there are many deaths and after the war, he is put on trial and without a, perhaps enough evidence, he's, he's released after a short trial. He gets on a boat from Singapore, hoping to go home to Korea. And in Hong Kong, he's apprehended and told to go back to Singapore and he's put back on trial again. He claims that the trial only took about a, a few days and, and he was actually only in court for, for less than an hour. Uh, and on written statements alone, there were no witnesses in the actual courtroom. He was then, to his horror, um, condemned to death. Now, that was later 
changed to 20 years in prison and he served about half that time, half that time in Singapore and half that time in Tokyo and then remained stateless for the rest of his life because he can never return to Korea. Um, it's quite a story, but I just wanted you to talk about how safe that conviction was, particularly that that second one, because it seems to me that it, it's exactly what you were talking about, that they had very little time and some of these trials were rushed through. Yes, I think that that trial, um, it was an Australian trial. It was not a British trial, but I understand correctly. Thank you for that correction. Yeah. So um, I think that there, this, I, I'm sure that this was not an isolated case because they were the, the Allied powers were individually under pressure to finish the trials as soon as possible so they could move on to for reconstruction and, um, and peace. And there were, based on my own research, there were trials that were involved more than one defendant were conducted only after a couple of days and uh, resulted in very harsh sentences. So after the trials concluded, uh, the majority of defendants of um, those convicted did have their sentences reduced or they were released. However, that does not minimize the fact that the trials were conducted in a very rushed and problematic fashion. And you could tell there were problems of getting sufficient evidence and identification because many of the witnesses could not recognize the accused persons and, and referred to them with nicknames, not even their real names. So there were all these issues. And you could tell that the court was struggling with them through the, uh, even when you read the trial transcripts. Uh, so that, that even comes through when you read the, the trial transcripts that, that there's confusion about a few some yes. of those things. And the courts, the judges were quite, some judges were quite interventionist. So they actually would ask the witnesses questions after the lawyers had concluded. So was justice done? Here's Sarah Kovner again. Well, yeah, I mean, what's justice and who decides, right? I mean, this is a big question and lots of people have talked about it. I would say, you know, nobody, certainly nobody at the time thought that they delivered justice for themselves, right? Like the, if you talk to the Korean guards, they do not think it was just. If you talk to the, I mean, you know, if you talk to people who are working as other kinds of guards, if you talk to prisoners of war, they would, they think it's outrageous that the people who held them captive got off so lightly, Right. Because as you mentioned at the, at the beginning, um, most of the sentences end up being commuted and prisoners being, I mean, you didn't say that. You said that one person's sentence was commuted, but um, that many of them, and so that um, I think that, I think some and, of you them, know, and of course, questions of war well, guilt and reparations are still live issues today. And here's Chair again. So, I mean, you've, you've studied them in, in, in detail. Would you, and this is a big question, I know, would you say that justice was done? I think to the extent that was possible then, given the resource constraints as well as the, the way they were trying to complete it so quickly. I, I, I wouldn't say that... I, I think that things could have been done better because of the... If, if they were, didn't do this in such a rushed manner. And 
those who had death sentences handed down were executed quite rapidly. While those who didn't have death sentences later on did have their sentences reduced or released after they were transferred back to Japan due to the um, post-war compromise. So in that sense, if you got the death sentence, you would not be you would not have been able to benefit from that. And I realized that despite all their years of studying, in Sarah's case the treatment of POWs, and in Chair's case the war crime trials, the reason they can't give me a definitive answer is simple. There is no definitive answer. The concepts of accountability and justice are just too abstract and complex to satisfy everybody. There will never be a simple answer or solution. Some of the POWs had always been ambivalent about the ideas in their eyes of extracting revenge through war tribunals. Others felt utterly frustrated at the perceived leniency of the convictions. Speaking to Aiko Utsumi, formerly of Keisen University, Tokyo, and a colleague of hers, Toyoki Okoda, in Japan, they felt that the war trials issue had never been fully resolved there either. Speaking through an interpreter, they told me... So the um, Okoda finished by saying that um, after the railways, those at the bottom were, exactly as you said, were held responsible. Yeah. A lot of given death sentences, but the people in the middle... When there were the, the none of the trials led to anything, they were able to go back to their normal lives, and he thinks that that that's a, a still a, a very very a big problem that 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 needs to be needs to be talked about. Nothing illustrates this point more than the fact that when he Hak Nai, the Korean guard I discussed with Chia earlier, was released from prison in Japan in the 1950s, the country's prime minister was Nobusuke Kishi a man arrested in 1945 for war crimes, a man whose wartime behaviour in Manchuria was so bad it earned him the sobriquet, the monster of the Shoah era, but who somehow did not stand trial thanks to an American lobby group who said he was the best man to lead a post-war Japan in a pro-American direction. It took him less than a decade to rise to the top of the greasy pole. Post-war realpolitik was quick to divide those who had friends with influence and those who did not. 130 of the 15,000 Japanese and Korean guards were put on trial for war crimes at the end of the war. 32 of them were hanged for their crimes. Did the prisoners feel justice had been done? Weary Dunlop, for example, wrote years later... I must confess that I have not had any great heart in war trials. There is a good deal to be forgiven. I think the war trials are a very difficult thing to feel happy about. Reflecting on this and reading the memoirs of prisoners, I realise one thing. If former captives and captors were looking for closure, they needed to find it themselves. It would be the individual not the state, that would ultimately bring that resolution. And some found that through reconciliation. Four of the people whose stories we've heard 
made peace with a former captor towards the end of their lives. Here's Julie and me talking about her grandfather, Colonel Philip Tuzi, and how his former Japanese camp sergeant attempted to reconnect with him years after the war. It's it's interesting you mentioned that because there is a certain amount of reconciliation uh, towards the end of, of lives with, with a few people that I'm looking into. And, and, and for example, Eric Lomax is a very famous one uh, and Weary Dunlop uh, towards the end of his life meets some of his former uh, guards, including one that he called a right little bastard. They eventually sort of got on with each other. And the sergeant in, in, the, in the camp, uh, Sato, I believe his name was, uh, he actually became quite profoundly uh, affected and moved by your grandfather's magnanimity uh, when the war was over and, and then uh, sort of sides turned, as it were. It did. And he, he, he said after the war, my grandfather said, you can let this man go free because he, he was fair. He was tough, but he was fair. And Saito came to Britain in the 1970s. And there's a prologue at the beginning of the book where I describe this moment where my Uncle Nicholas, six foot three, was crammed into a filthy phone box in London with Saito and a translator trying to speak to my grandfather, Nicholas, putting 10p coins into the into the slot. Um, and that didn't work. It wasn't a good it wasn't it wasn't it was a very disturbing conversation for both of them but Saito came back after my grandfather died and he went to his grave and I, I, I you can read the quotes in the back of the book if you want but he said you know your he said to my uncle Patrick you know, your father changed the philosophy of my life um he showed me what a man should be he was a bridge over the battlefield um and Saito had great respect for for my grandfather and I'm only sad the two didn't meet because I think if they had met when my grandfather wasn't so ill that would have been a, a reconciliation. That attempt at reconciliation was traumatic for both men. Saito became too emotionally distraught to be able to speak over the phone, and Tuzi asked his son to hang up. That night, Tuzi had nightmares about the death railway for the first time in years. Saito later converted to Christianity, due in part to his admiration of Tuzi's forgiveness. They never did meet after the war. After Tuzi's death, Saito wrote to his family to say, I regret I could not visit Mr. Philip Tuzi when he was alive. He showed me what a human being should be. In 2015, Harold Atchley, who'd seen the very worst conditions on the railway and had survived through luck, possibly just because his name began with A, met a former Japanese guard in London. Both men were by then in their 90s. After the meeting, Ashley said, We should, I think, remind ourselves that wars are not made by soldiers, but by governments. Mikio Kenoshita, his Japanese counterpart, reflected after the meeting, When I consider the war, regardless of the winners or losers, it seems it is the people who are involved are the victims. I heartily hope that such sorrow will not be repeated ever again. Ashley kept a dowry whilst a prisoner of war. Writing in Changi in March 1943, he concluded that the key to world peace was the abolition or at least reduction of the sovereignty of the individual state. Politically and economically, we cannot carry on as separate nations muddling along in our own particular ways 
relying on our own economic and, if necessary, military strength to get for ourselves a greater share of things that are equally vital to somebody else, and to which fundamentally they are just as much entitled as we. The equal distribution of the world's food and raw materials should be the job of an international group. People must be taught that they have other responsibilities than those to the particular states in which they happen to have been born. A much nobler and far-reaching responsibility to mankind. It must be seldom indeed that any ordinary man or woman has wanted to fight and destroy those whom the men playing the game of power politics have made our enemies. I've never wanted to fight Germans or Japanese. How can anyone like or dislike a whole nation? Perhaps these thoughtful words, written in captivity 80 years ago, are just as relevant now as they were then. Colonel Weary Dunlop's post-war reconciliation took place in Australia. The man whom he had known as the Lizard during the war was in fact the same Korean guard I discussed earlier in this episode with Chia, Yi Hak Nai. Their reunion in 1991 was orchestrated in part by Aiko Utsumi, and with the help of a translator, she told me about their reunion. Well, we talked about Yi Hak Nai, the Korean guard, and she would have been in Australia when he met Weary Dunlop and apologised to Colonel Weary Dunlop. Uh, Colonel Weary Dunlop had called him a nasty little bastard or a vicious little bastard, but she met them when they met up 40 years later and uh, and they had a reconciliation. I just wonder if she remembers that meeting between the two of them. <laughs> oh, so she invited them. So at the beginning of the Korean Guard, he was very nervous. And so the prisoner of war was also maybe not exactly nervous, but he was really he didn't know how he should treat the uh, the the encounter beforehand. He said even 40 something years later, he still remembered being hit, being tortured. Initially, Yi Hak Nai declined the invitation. He couldn't face Dunlop after all those years. And then he saw a documentary about the death railway on Japanese television. And Dunlop was talking about him. But because they'd filmed Dunlop and he, he said Tokage, which is like a lizard, which, uh, which whose tail could uh, fall off, um, is, is the nickname they had for him. And he said Tokage wasn't so bad. So he said he'd heard that, 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 that uh, he was unable to go back to Korea and he was stuck in Japan. And he said he wanted to, to cheer him on. To, to show him his support, and that was in his re- interview with NHK. And when he saw that, uh, he said, "Okay, I I want to go to Australia and apologise directly to Dunlop." So, at a conference for the Death Railway in Australia, Dunlop and Yi Hak Nai met again for the first time in fifty years. The reunion was watched by several people, including other former prisoners of war. So both of them were extremely nervous. So when they did meet for the first time, the entire, um, the whole um, Congress, the whole group, everyone in attendance was extremely um, nervous. 
So when Dunlop entered and they saw each other for the first time, all of that tension um, melted away. And then um, the, uh, the lizard, Tokage, uh, um, read the, uh, the, the message that he had prepared. An apology, yeah. That message was, From the bottom of my heart, I wanted to apologise profoundly. As one of the aggressor side, to Colonel Dunlop and all the former POWs for the bitterness and pain of the loss of so many of their comrades under such harsh circumstances. Before you all, I apologise from my heart. Uh, he was so nervous the whole time he couldn't force a smile. <laughs> So uh, when he apologized and he felt that it was his he'd finally got to say it and it was it was accepted finally to um the the other um the other prisoners of war could see he slightly saw his he, he had something that resembled a bit of a smile. So just one apology can't uh, get rid of all of the all of the the the, the ill will, but that apology was a, the first important uh, important step. Dunlop's reluctance to testify against Yi Hak Nai had probably saved his life, as the death penalty was commuted to imprisonment due to a lack of witnesses. Dunlop died two years after the conference in Australia. Yi wrote, "I owe you my life." After speaking together of the unhappiness of war, you shook hands with me and the warmth of your large hands remains with me. From my heart I thank you and I pray that you rest in peace. I said we would return to Takashi Negase, whom we met earlier exhuming the bodies of POWs after the war was over. As we heard, Negase was an interpreter for the Kempatai, the Japanese military police. He was present whilst men were tortured, including a vicious interrogation of a young Scottish signals officer, Eric Lomax, who had been caught with the radio. Lomax writes movingly in his book, The Railway Man, of their slow steps towards reconciliation years after the war, and how they eventually agreed to meet again in Canterbury, Thailand. That touching reunion was caught on film by documentary filmmaker Michael Finlayson. May I touch your hand? Oh, yes. No, no, I mean, when you are tortured, you know, oh. being tortured, I measured your part. Yes. And uh, yes. your part of it is very smooth. Yes. So I am very well, much relaxed. You see, these are, the, these are where the broken bones are. Mm. Yes. yes, I remember. Yes. Very sorry. Yeah. Very sorry for you. Well, we've uh, we both survived. There is something so profoundly moving about this moment. Agassay holds on to Lomax's hand, both hands gripping his wrist, and in that moment, the grip so urgent, you feel his pain, his guilt, his need for forgiveness and redemption so poignant. Two old men on a bridge in Thailand, looking for peace 
after a life of pain. So much suffering, so much torment, so many lives damaged or destroyed for a railway line built in a desperate and vain attempt to win a war. If you look at a map of this, you'll see bridge, railway bridge, railway bridge, railway. Just goes like ding, 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 ding all across. Uh, cemetery was down there somewhere, I think. Nothing remains. No tracks, no bridges, no station. The cemetery's gone too. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you found it interesting, please visit the website www.deathrailwayrevisited.com where you'll find more information and photos of the location I visited. This podcast is by no means an exhaustive or comprehensive account of the Death Railway. It's based on what I saw and who I spoke to. So if you'd like to know more about the railway, there's a suggested reading and watching list on the website. I do hope you find them interesting. Death Railway Revisited was written, presented and produced by me, Nick Fordham. Sound editing and design by Harry Ovington. Thank you to all the people who agreed to speak to me for this podcast. It was a pleasure to speak with every one of you. Thanks also to Ben Daggers for his Japanese translation work in the final episode. And finally, a big thank you to Alice Hogg, who provided invaluable advice and feedback over many weeks. This podcast would not have been made without her.